0: The FT.
1: Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is Martin Arnold, our banking editor, and Sam Fleming, our financial policy correspondent. Down the line, we're also joined by Simon Gleason, a partner at Clifford Chance Law Firm. Today, we'll be looking at US stress tests as the banks go through their annual rigmarole. Secondly, conduct under scrutiny at the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK. And finally, people on the move at the UK's state-owned banks, with one chairman going and one finance director arriving. Over to the US first, Martin. We had this annual stress test procedure happening there last week. And I think quite a lot of surprises, really, in terms of where we are in this whole cycle. A lot of people had expected it to be relatively smooth going this year but Citigroup was a notable negative surprise and we also had some bad news for some of the foreign banks in the US.
2: That's right. It was a bad week for Mike Corbat, the chief executive of Citi, who were the big failures of the US stress tests. They passed on the quantitative numbers. They had enough capital to pass the stress tests without falling below the minimum levels required but there were qualitative elements of the test that they failed. And this is a new level that the Fed has been adding to stress tests in recent years. So not only just looking at the raw numbers, but also at the quality of the controls and the auditing around the preparation of the numbers done by the banks and their risk controls. And Citi was found to be failing on several of those measures. And remember that the last time... City failed a stress test back in 2012. Vikram Pandit, the then chief executive, lost his job shortly afterwards.
1: So are people talking about Corbett's
2: job being on the line now? We think he's probably safe but he's certainly under a lot of pressure. I think he already was under pressure because the city's share price has underperformed the banking sector, the overall markets and many of its main peer group. So there was already pressure on him and now investors are doubly upset. Not only they've got an underperforming share price, but they're not going to get a dividend.
1: So that's the concrete consequence of this failure of the stress test. They're basically not going to get a return of capital or as much of a payout as they had been led to believe. certainly
2: in the immediate impact yes city still has approval for its previous buyback program so it can continue with that which gives it a little bit of ability to return capital but the dividend is on hold until city resubmits its filing to the fed and then the fed will review that and if finally there is approval of that then there could be a dividend after that so it's not impossible that city will be able to pay a dividend in the second half of the year say but these things tend to take a few months to sort out.
1: There was also bad news as I mentioned in the introduction for some of the foreign banks in the US who also went through this process. Who were the notable cases there?
2: Yeah the Fed expanded the group of banks that it was subjecting to stress tests and added six foreign-owned US banks and of those six three of them failed And they were Santander of Spain, HSBC of the UK, and our very own Royal Bank of Scotland, which owns a big retail bank in the US called Citizens. And it was a particular blow for RBS, which is, remember, 81% owned by the British government, because its capital has fallen to uh, fairly worryingly low levels of late. And its big plan for restoring those capital levels is to float or sell... Citizens, this big US retail bank that it owns. And so for citizens to have failed the stress test, again on those qualitative measures, not so much on the quantitative, it's got lots of capital. It's well above the. Minimum capital levels required, but its qualitative elements, controls, particularly risk controls, were seen as insufficient by the Fed. And that's pretty damaging for any company, particularly one planning to float or to be bought by a competitor, which is a key moment for it. So that's likely to reduce the value that RBS can get from any sale and may put off any potential buyers. And it's likely to delay the filing for the IPO, which was expected before the summer, because I don't imagine that RBS is going to do a filing for an IPO at a time when it's failed the stress test. So it needs to resubmit and wait for the Fed hopefully to approve its revised filing for the stress test. And then it can possibly go ahead with a filing for the IPO, which it still says it's still on track and still hopes to get that IPO done by the end of the year.
1: Okay, thanks for that, Martin. Let's move on to our second topic, which is news that the Financial Conduct Authority has come in for a... Load of criticism over the past few days. It's rather taken attention away from the publication on Monday morning of a big business review by the FCA. Sam, you've been looking at that. Is there anything in there that we should be paying attention to? Or is all the attention focused on last Friday's insurance row rightly taking attention away from it? Well, I think the answer to the question is yes to both. <laughs> yes, there's important <laughs> stuff in this business plan and
3: risk outlook they published this morning. But yes, the FCA is under tremendous fire at the moment because of the handling of the release of uh, information related to that business plan. Remind Who, us what happened exactly yeah. on Friday. A Daily Telegraph report contained an interview with Clive Adamson, Head of Enforcement at the FCA, which referred to a review which is also discussed in this business plan into legacy issues. The life insurance industry, whether consumers were getting a fair deal with those contracts, many of which were written decades ago. The way the report came out led to precipitous declines on Friday morning in share prices of a number of so-called zombie life insurance companies, which finally on Friday afternoon. The FCA then stepped in and clarified
1: the scope of the review, which was not as far-reaching as initially suggested. As you say, it affected the share prices of some zombie life insurers, but also, obviously, some of the big life companies as well which have these so-called zombie operations basically closed books of business closed book is the focus exactly. so there was tumult right across the industry <laughs> tumult right across the industry as effectively there was
3: a semi information vacuum filled by this article which led to a lot of confusion the fca stepped in friday afternoon clarified the situation that's led to some recovery in some of the share prices but also a lot of criticism for the way the fca allowed this information to get out into the public that criticism stepped up over the weekend With Andrew Tyree of the Treasury Committee saying this looks like an astonishing blunder the way it was handled. The FCA is now conducting an inquiry into how it handled the information, called in a law firm to look at the way this is handled the players in the industry are now saying that Martin Wheatley himself, the chief executive of the FCA, should be reconsidering his position. It's an astonishing mess. And as you say, it certainly hasn't helped what was hoped to be a fairly clean announcement of the FCA's business plan for the coming year, and an institution which is marking its first anniversary of its existence.
1: Well, that life assurance issue will certainly drag on for some time, I suspect, not least until the internal inquiry is completed, but the noise will remain, I suspect. But let's have a quick word on the business plan itself. You mentioned there are some interesting elements in there what would you highlight I think the wholesale side of this business plan is interesting. So there's a lot more focus
3: in the coming 12 months by the FCA on benchmarks, on the controls that investment banks put on traders who are involved in the setting of prices and benchmarks. They're going to be looking at Chinese walls and conflicts of interest within investment banks, whether they're handling potential conflicts of interest well, ensuring that clients with
1: different interests don't suffer because of the way those are handled. This is obviously an attempt to come at the whole LIBOR and foreign exchange scandal from the other side, if you like, but preemptively. Exactly.
3: Yeah. On top of that, a lot of consumer interest, they take over the FCA, the regulation of consumer credit for the first time this year. That is going to be a huge piece of work for them. They're regulating thousands, literally, of firms now. One of the things they say they want to look at is the credit card market, whether consumers are getting a good deal in credit cards. Inevitably, there'll be a lot of focus also on what they say about payday lending, which they're looking at. And I mean, it's an extraordinary array of work, an awful lot on their hands, and really, the last thing they needed at this time was a scandal to capital
1: off. Quite. We're joined by Simon Gleeson from Clifford Chance. Simon, thanks very much for joining us. The FCA business plan, as it's oh. been put out today, Monday. Is there anything in there that gets you excited?
4: To be honest, the thing that gets me most excited is the whole frail bits. I mean, there are. As always, the interesting stuff is as much in the risk assessment paper and what it tells us about what they're worried about. And what that seems to tell us is two things, really. One of them is that they're very worried about what they call backbooks the idea that because existing incumbents in businesses have large numbers of immobile clients, that is choking off new entrants and disadvantaging consumers and so it looks as if there's going to be a serious attempt to see whether it's possible to shake up sort of the existing client portfolios of businesses so that i think is the first of the important issues second is that they recognize in the risk paper that the cumulative effect of Basel and a number of other things has been to put real stresses on the profitability of core business areas What they're saying about that is where there are stresses on profitability, then there is a risk that firms will be pushed towards doing things to increase the profit on their existing activities, and that in turn may damage customers, and that again they're flagging as a fairly serious area of focus.
1: I suppose that's good preemptive kind of strategizing in one sense. Yeah. That second point in particular recalls some of the mess that was obviously caused by a distorted pricing in the banking market, which led to, yeah, in many yeah. ways, the PPI mis-selling scandal. I'm guessing you applaud that. To what extent, though, do you think this whole new business plan, good as it may be, has been rather detracted from by the noise from last Friday, with Life Assurers complaining about the way information was just selectively put in. Into the public domain, and their share prices tumbled on the back of it.
4: Well, I must say, what I, what I find most interesting about that is that five years ago, the information that the regulator was going to have a look at a particular area, I think, would have had absolutely zero impact on the market. <laughs> you know, the yeah. reason that Friday was so interesting is because where we are at the moment, even the suggestion that the regulator is going to take an interest in a particular business implies to people the virtual certainty that the participants in that business are going to be hit with absolutely huge fines and compensation payments. (laughs) The really extraordinary thing is that um, the market is now so adamant that the FSA exists to cost firms huge amounts of money that even the information that SCAs going to look into something is extraordinarily market sensitive. I'm not sure the SCA appreciated that to be honest although they certainly know it now.
1: Absolutely and the Financial Conduct Authority do you think they are weakened by that whole farrago though? I mean is chatter over the weekend about Martin Wheatley's position being more difficult now.
4: To be honest I don't Really, I mean, you know, there is the small point that if a listed firm had managed to market communication that badly, the FCA would have fined it a very large amount of money. So Quite. It, it's, it's certainly not the FCA's finest hour. At the moment, that particular thing seems to be nothing more than a sort of slight mishandling of something that should have been done better. I think what they will take away, and hopefully they should think about, is that the assumption that they're really no longer a regulator and they exist for the sole purpose of finding people at regular intervals is not the ideal way that any regulator wants to be perceived by the outside world.
1: No, absolutely. You know,
4: I, mean, I, I think there's a really big risk for the FCA yeah, that, yeah. that the long-term effect of this is almost to destroy their relationship with regulated firms. I think it's something they're quite sensitive to. It's the idea of ending up like the SEC, where the relationship between SEC and US regulated firms is sort of frankly adversarial and has been for years. There is a bit of a risk of the fca going down that route at the moment and i'm quite confident that is something that they would very much not want to happen
1: well as a young institution maybe they have time to moderate that position simon thanks ever so much for joining us our third topic for the day is a couple of elements of movement within the uk's state-owned banks at lloyd's we have chairman sir win bischoff retiring later in the week at RBS News that, at least unofficially for the time being, that they have found a new finance director in the form of Ewan Stevenson, a senior banker at Credit Suisse. First on Lloyds, Martin, you and Charlene Goff did a very nice interview to accompany Sir Wynne's departure from Lloyds. What were the key kind of elements that you took away from that interview? He's obviously a very long-standing figure in the industry and he was reflecting both on that career and also on Lloyds.
2: Yeah, he's had nearly five decade career in financial services from his long time at Schroder's and becoming chief executive of that and then becoming chairman of Citigroup which bought Schroder's and and even for a short period interim chief executive of Citigroup and then back in the financial crisis switching over to take over as chairman of Lloyd's just after it was bailed out by the British government. And then he's overseen a pretty remarkable rebound in the fortunes of Lloyd's with its share price rebounding very strongly. The government starting to sell its stake. There's talk that they could start paying a dividend this year. They're returning to profit. So lots of good things have happened at Lloyds. Lots of pretty bad things have happened at Lloyds as well. They've, you know, they've had to take provisions worth almost £8 billion for the mis-selling of payment protection insurance and they have been hit with lots of
1: other fines for various wrongdoing. Most of which I suppose Sir Wynne can attribute to the kind of pre-crisis years or certainly years before his tenure.
2: That's true, but it's still top of his agenda, When we spoke to him and you asked what had been most interesting and he said that the biggest thing that had changed in his career in banking was that conduct had really shifted up to the top of the boardroom agenda for Mm. banks and regulation, I suppose, is included in that. He said he spent half his time looking at regulation and I guess even more time, you know, looking at conduct issues and we asked him what his big regret was, was this PPI mis-selling scandal. But he had some advice or a suggestion for regulators which caught our eye. He was harking back to the days of the governor's eyebrow when regulation was all done through a cosy chat over a cup of tea with the governor of the Bank of England in one of the uh, parlours of the um, Threadneedle Street headquarters of the old lady and saying how, you know, these things would usually should be framed in the form of a question. When are you sure that that's the sort of thing you want to do? And that would be taken very seriously. And you'd go back and discuss it with your colleagues and then come back and give the governor an answer and it was all it was all judgement based and he's saying that we've become far too rule bound in our regulation and there's not enough flexibility for regulators to use their judgement. One example he gave was the uh, sprawling investigation which could be extremely damaging for investment banks across the world into alleged manipulation of the foreign exchange markets because he said that you know in order for bankers to cover their position on, on large trades in the foreign exchange markets, they do need to speak to other people to settle some of these very large trades. You can't do this just on your own. But now, this contact between traders is being presented as collusion. And the point that he's making is regulators should use a certain amount of common sense. I think... To a certain extent, this tallies with what a lot of people in investment banking and foreign exchange tradies are saying, most of them saying it privately. But uh, inevitably, because he's 72 years old and he's retiring from the board of Lloyds, he is going on to be chairman of the Financial Reporting Council, which is the accountancy watchdog. So he's going to continue to have an important role, particularly in regulation and accounting.
1: He'll have a chance to put his words into He, he will, but
2: yeah. you know, I think inevitably his words have been painted slightly as harking back in an old-fashioned type way, but I think a lot of people will agree with him, certainly in the banking world.
1: One thing we should point out, of course, is that Lloyd's itself is not immune to this foreign exchange investigation. I think they've suspended one or two people themselves and may yet be caught up in it more. Sam?
3: I mean, I suppose the, the one point to make on this judgment idea is that regulators do say they are becoming more judgment-led. This is one of the mantras in the regulatory sphere is that they're not just ticking boxes and so on. They've moved on from that. They're trying to to exercise judgment and also I, I suppose if you're a banker you need to be a little bit careful what you wish for. Regulators purely use judgment and sort of subjective assessments of what's right and wrong and it can be quite difficult to predict what regulators are going to say about a particular situation and the stress test we were talking about earlier is a classic example where you do hear bankers complain that it's impossible to guess what the outcome of a stress test round will be. It's a perfect example of the exercise of judgment um, by the regulator but it can lead to unpredictable results. Absolutely.
2: And investors get upset by this as well. The investors are furious. When the news about Citigroup failing the stress test came out, they described the stress test as a black box. There's no way to predict this. How could they have possibly been able to predict that Citi would not be able to pay a dividend? It's upset a lot of investors.
1: Let's have one final word on RBS and the potential appointment of and Stevenson currently a senior banker at Credit Suisse, he'll be reunited, kind of, with his old boss from Credit Suisse, James Lee Pemberton, who is now head of UKFI, which controls the government stake in RBS. Do you suspect that's where this initiative has come from? There's
2: three potential filters through which you could examine this particular story. One of them is uh, that one where there's the old Credit Suisse Mafia, if you like, with Ewan Stevenson being reunited with James Lee Pemberton as his biggest shareholder. He'd be the CFO. That's clearly one angle. The other is the New Zealand Mafia because (laughs) you've got Ewan Stevenson, a New Zealand born Kiwi, joining RBS, which is run by uh, Ross McEwen, another Kiwi who was appointed only last October. So the two top executives will both be New Zealanders running Uh, one of Britain's biggest banks. And the third is that he actually advised the government on the bailout of RBS as part of a Credit Suisse team that were advising the government at the time of the financial crisis. So in a way, he's being brought in, if he is appointed, to sort out the consequences of that decision to bail out RBS and to try and ultimately get The bank into a position where he can undo that particular bit of advice by getting the bank profitable enough and valuable enough for the government to start selling its stake. But nobody expects that to happen anytime
1: soon. Indeed. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin and Sam for their contributions, to thank Simon as well for contributing, and also to thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com/slash/banking. Banking Weekly was produced by John Byrne Murdoch. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward
0: slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.
1: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.